there a moment in your life you wish you could do over? Somewhere where you're longing to have that moment back, to change what you did or said, to live that hour over again, maybe make a different choice this time. It's sort of like kids playing. They mess up and they call a do-over. You just start again like nothing ever happened. Well, I'm Jeff Ebert, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People. And we are in Season 1, Episode 36. And today we're looking at the life of Judas and his impact here at the end, towards the end of the gospel. You know, in a friendly game of golf, they call that a mulligan. You hit a bad shot, your worst one, you take a mulligan and you try again. And I think we often wish we had mulligans in life, but we can't move the clock back, can't undo what has been done. And we realize that life really is the sum of our choices. The scriptures tell us that Judas wished he'd made a different choice on that Passover evening when he gathered with Jesus and the other disciples in the upper room. So let's hear the beginning of his story from John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. Jesus said, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of scripture. And he quotes, he who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after he said that, said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him, ask him which one he means. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the dish of the, uh, the dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Judas, this man who was a central character in the whole crucifixion drama. There's been a lot of speculation about him in recent years. There are a number of well-meaning Christians who want everything to work out well in the end, so they want to soften the harsher parts of Scripture, kind of round off some of the sharp edges, and in some ways they want to find an excuse for Judas and what he did. So one modern view is that it was really wasn't Judas's fault. He was a victim. He was just a pawn in God's hands. In other words, he was predetermined or predestined or pre-programmed, if you will, to do this evil thing. He did it because he was supposed to do it. He had to do it, and it really wasn't his fault. Well, yes, it was prophesied that someone close to the Messiah would betray him. Jesus quotes this prophecy in Psalm, from Psalm 41, verse 9. It says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So he does share that prophecy, and you know, that was written a thousand years before Christ was born. 
It's one of over 300 specific prophecies from the Old Testament fulfilled by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And someone was going to portray Jesus the Messiah. But friends, it didn't have to be Judas. It could have been someone else. We struggle between how much does God cause things to happen versus how much does God just know about ahead of time. Things that he causes versus the things that he allows or permits. The tension between God's foreknowledge and what is predetermined. That's a tough knot to untangle, especially if you're in a room with a lot of Calvinists. Judas, like all of us, was a free moral agent. He was not a pawn. He was not pre-programmed to act in a certain way, to act in an evil way. God doesn't do that, but God certainly allows evil to happen. We see that on every page of history. People and nations, they do sinful things, terrible things that have real-world consequences, like suffering, death, war, starvation, abuse, death camps, all the rest. God allows sinful people to do horrible things to each other and to the innocent. And so in the total context of how God deals with humanity, we know that God gives us the freedom to make real choices, and we carry the responsibility that comes with those choices. God doesn't program people. And especially God doesn't program people for sin or for failure. Another modern view is that Judas generally repented from his deed before he killed himself and therefore received forgiveness. And we'll look at that issue a little bit later, but there doesn't seem to be any real biblical evidence for repentance. There was remorse, certainly, but none for repentance. But not much biblical support for it. As we read through the Gospels, we come up with the feeling that Judas had some beautiful chances to respond to Jesus, and he turned them down. Why did Jesus or Judas betray Jesus? Well, let's take a quick tour kind of through his past, his life. Here are some just remarkable facts about Judas. He was personally chosen to be an apostle by Jesus Christ. He forsook all to follow the Lord, just like the other disciples. He spent three and a half years traveling the length and breadth of Israel with Jesus. He saw all the miracles of Christ in person. He heard Jesus give all his famous sermons and parables and discourses in person. He watched as Christ healed the sick and raised the dead and cast out demons. I mean, he saw all of that. He, along with the other apostles, was sent out to preach the gospel, which he did enthusiastically. He was one of the leaders of the apostolic band because he was in charge of the money. And so no one ever suspected him of treason. In terms of experience with Jesus and up to this point, loyalty to Jesus, whatever you could say about James or Peter or John, you could also say that about Judas. Everywhere they went, he went. He was right there, always at the side of Jesus. He heard it all, saw it all, experienced it all. However you explain his defection, however you explain his treason, you cannot say he was less of a follower than the other disciples. If anything, he was actually one of their leaders. And like I said, the other apostles chose him to handle the money. And you don't pick a man whose loyalty you suspect to handle your money. Go back to chapter 12, uh, verse 4, where John adds some commentary uh, to when Judas objected to Mary pouring the expensive nard on Jesus' feet. Now, John's insight into Judas, that comes after all of these events we're reading about. They wouldn't normally put someone in charge of the money that they didn't trust. That's crazy. You pick your best man, your most trustworthy man, the man you know you can count on. 
the one with a good head on his shoulders. And that's why they picked Judas. So mark it down. They never, ever dreamed that Judas had treason in his heart. They didn't see it at all. Totally blindsided when they finally see him lead the soldiers to arrest Jesus in the garden. To the very end, they found his conduct to be above suspicion. It's like how people talk about serial killers or mass casualty shooters. He was such a nice guy, kind of quiet. You know, he kind of kept to himself. You would think if a man were evil enough to betray the Lord, it would show in his face that at some point the cesspool within his heart would bubble to the surface, but it never happened. Judas was very good at hiding his true self. He was, in fact, the perfect snitch. About 30 years later, around A.D. 65, the gospel, Matthew, uh, the gospel writer Matthew, he lists the names of the apostles, and he does it this way, Peter, James, and John, and then the others, and Judas is last, always last. But he was, it's never just Judas. It's Judas who betrayed him. Same as when Mark wrote his gospel, Judas who betrayed him. When Luke writes his gospel, it's the same, Judas who betrayed him. Then after 30 years more, John, who we now know is in his 80s or 90s of age, he writes his gospel. He called him Judas, who was later to betray him. It's as if they never got over what happened. This betrayal, it really stung them because they missed it. They didn't see the signs that Jesus saw. And like a lot of people who experience serious trauma, the passage of time did not dim their feelings about what happened. They still felt it. Maybe they sometimes lay with their eyes open in the middle of the night asking, why was I so stupid? How come I was so blind? How come I couldn't see it? How could that slip past the goalie? They did not get over the enormity of his crime. It was as heinous to them in their old age as it had been when they were young. Sometimes the gospel writers called him Judas, who was one of the twelve, stressing the intimate relationship he had with Christ. Sometimes it was Judas who ate with him, stressing how he breached that common bond of fellowship. To eat with a friend and then betray him, how could it possibly be? They couldn't figure it out. This guy who knew so much, who saw so much, who experienced Jesus up close and personal, how could a man like that go over to the other side? This reminds me of the contemporary situation where you may see someone who you know or knew as a brother or sister in the faith who just kind of walks away from the faith. Just chuck it. Whether they're swept along by the tide of faith reconstruction that's going on, uh, some folks uh, use that as an excuse to turn away from their faith, the faith of their teen or early years because of some flaw they saw in churches or in their youth group or whatever, or some kind of real crisis of faith. And you wonder, why? When you know they saw the Lord at work in their life, how can they now just walk away? Judas did it. And he had a greater exposure to the person of Christ than any of us today. It's possible to know and experience the power of Christ and then later to turn your back on him. So Judas is a cautionary tale for all of us. Don't get proud. Don't get afflicted with a spiritual hubris because there but for the grace of God, any of us could also go. But that still brings us to the mystery of why. Why did Judas do it? Some people think it was just financial. John 12, 6 gives some credence to that motivation because the disciples eventually figured out Judas had his hand in the cookie jar from the beginning and was taking money from the ministry for himself. But I don't think his overall goal was financial. The 30 pieces of silver was a significant amount of money. 
But that wasn't it. I mean, most scholars think Judas had become disillusioned with Jesus. Judas was one of those who was hoping to gain power when Jesus acted as the Messiah to defeat the Romans and bring in a new kingdom. That's why he joined up. He would gain power. He would be in the inner circle when Jesus assumed his throne. But the plan wasn't working out as he hoped. Jesus was not moving toward the end Judas envisioned. The suffering servant, Lamb of God motif, that was not on Judas's agenda for Jesus. It wasn't just Peter who didn't want Jesus to go to Jerusalem and die. Judas was right there too. And I think Judas was not impressed with Jesus's washing of the feet. In a sense, he feels betrayed. He's feeling that Jesus <coughs> is not keeping his promises. It's going the wrong way. So he decides to create a scenario where Jesus will have to show his power, bring the soldiers to capture Jesus, bringing the soldiers will force Jesus to act, to bring out the, the big guns, to finally completely confront the evil Romans and restore Israel to its glory. Judas decided he needed to nudge Jesus along to get with the program. He would set up a scenario and Jesus would have to pull the pin on bringing in the kingdom of God. Judas was not some helpless pawn. He personifies people who sell out and who are using the Christian faith and Christ for their own interests. And there's no shortage of those people today, a lot of bad actors in the religious world. For Judas, there was a seed of corruption in him already. He was already stealing from the money bag. Already there was a flaw in his character. And it was enough of an opening so that Satan entered in and found a home in his heart. Maybe hard for us to fully understand the cruelty and disloyalty of this man. Here they are in the upper room breaking bread, the Passover meal. In the Jewish tradition, breaking bread with someone was a sign of friendship and loyalty. To break bread with someone means, I am with you. There's a sense of intimacy and trust. And so there are seated around, so there they are, they're seated around uh, this table. They don't sit in chairs. Uh, that's where Da Vinci got it wrong in the Last Supper. They reclined at low tables. The custom for eating was to lie on one's left side and lean on your left elbow and stick your feet back. The person to your right would be right there next to you. Verse 23 tells us this person was the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's how John liked to refer to himself in his own gospel. He loved to call himself that, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's a great title. I'm the one who's loved by Jesus. You know, we can say that too. You can say, I'm the one whom Jesus loves. You are the one whom Jesus loves. It's not an exclusionary title for John, and it's not a bad way to remember who you are. So John is right there, up close to Jesus. Peter's somewhere else around the table. Jesus makes the statement, one of you will betray me, and that prompted a lot of talk and discussion around the table. What do you mean? Do you know who it is? What's he talking about? And Peter kind of sends a signal to John, who's so close to him. He says, you know, kind of put up one finger if it's Andrew, two finger if it, fingers if it's Matthew. So John asked Jesus, kind of leaning back and close, who is it? Maybe no one else heard Jesus's response. Maybe this was just an aside given to John quietly, uh, not anyone else. The one I give a morsel of bread to, that's the one. It's important to catch a certain nuance here, a beautiful tradition that we can miss just reading the story so far removed from the original cultural context. In Jesus's day, kind of handing someone a piece of bread in this way was like making a toast. Let's raise our glasses and toast our friend Judas. That's really what he was doing in handing him a piece of bread. Let's raise our glasses. 
toast our friend Judas. Judas may have had the position of honor. He might have been in the spot right to the left of Jesus. And Jesus is at the place of the host. And leaning on his left elbow and eating with his right, John's sitting to Jesus' right so that his head was close to Jesus' chest. But if Judas was on Jesus' left, then it means Jesus' head was nearest to Judas. Judas held the seat of highest honor, the seat for the closest friend. And Jesus was leaning into him just as John was leaning into Jesus. And maybe at the beginning of the meal, Jesus said, Judas, come, come and sit next to me. Maybe this was another attempt to draw Judas closer, to draw him in so that he did not make the choice of this terrible night. Jesus took a piece of bread, dipped it in a cup of wine, and handed it to the guest of honor. A beautiful, poignant gesture to the one who was thinking about betrayal. Now think about that. Jesus, Jesus is using an appeal of love. All along, you see Jesus really appealing to Judas, never rebuking, always appealing to him. Dipped the bread, handed it to him. Their eyes met. I think there was maybe an awful moment of silent understanding. No one else could read a response from Judas, but Jesus could. And quietly, and I think with great sadness, Jesus said, whatever you have to do, do it quickly. And then Judas runs off. He was always running off to do errands. You know, he's making arrangements, planning things, giving money away, whatever. The disciples did not understand why Judas left, but I think maybe John did. At least he understood it later when he wrote of the event. So much emotion and pathos packed into these few verses. Judas must have been an amazing person, one of the most accomplished hypocrites there ever was. All that time, putting on an act of love that even the disciples couldn't pick up on. They did not suspect him. And that is just such a sobering thought, that people can actually do that, that they can go through life being so good at putting on an act, playing games and going through the religious motions, saying pious things, going to all the meetings and studies, greatly respected, and yet be totally phony. This is where we need to live in humility before our God and say, there but for the grace of God go I. We could be a bunch of Judases too. Deny him, play games, betray him. The same impulses are in us. We're no different than Judas, but it's hard for me to deal with that reality that I could possibly betray Jesus at some low point in my life. I really struggle with that. But I have the capacity, I have the capability like everyone listening to this podcast, apart from the grace of God, we all have the ability to turn against Jesus. Judas went out into the darkness. How symbolic, how dark it was. He consciously turned away from the light of the world. Later on, he feels the full impact and the stupidity of what he had done. It finally will hit home to him and he will feel terrible remorse, terrible pain and guilt and failure. He wished he could turn the clock back, and he couldn't. He wished to undo what he had done, but couldn't. He wanted to turn away from the sin that he committed, but he couldn't. But he didn't turn toward Jesus. He felt terrible. He felt guilty. But that's where it stopped. It stopped with just feeling guilty. He didn't go seek forgiveness. 
The shock of what he'd done spread through his system like a fast-acting poison. Judas felt like he had reached a dead end, and we're told he killed himself. Driven to despair by his demonic actions, if he had only waited, if he had only waited until Sunday, he could have turned and Jesus would have been there to welcome him. Because let's remember, Peter verbally denied Jesus. The other disciples, they all ran away, not much better. But Judas, I mean, Peter actually verbally denied him three times. And is what Judas did really that much worse than what Peter did? No. What Judas did, it was not the unforgivable sin. Christ would have appeared to him just as he did to skeptical Thomas and all the rest of them. If he had only waited, Judas could have been forgiven. Now, there's a great classic novel written in the 1960s by the Japanese author Shusaku Endo. It was made into a movie a few years ago by Martin Scorsese, and I'd recommend the book and the movie. But it tells the story of the horrible, bloody persecution faced by Catholic missionaries in 17th century Japan. The samurai inquisitors soon found out that the brutal killings of Christians, it wasn't going to stop the spread of the faith. In fact, the martyr's faith that lasted till death was so impressive, others put their faith in Christ. But they figured out a strategy that would stop the growth of Christianity in its tracks because they're a shame-based culture. You know, a lot of Asian cultures are shame-based cultures. And so instead of killing Christians, they found a way to get them to deny Christ and become apostate. They would convince believers just to stomp on a flat bronze image of Jesus that in Japanese is called a fumi. Sort of like the Orthodox Church has icons. Oh, they had these flat images and they convinced the Christians it wasn't so bad. It's just a gesture, but it would break their will and they would become disheartened and other believers would become disheartened because in the back of their minds, they knew they were denying Christ to save their lives. The main character, a priest named Father Rodriguez, he's captured, he's put on trial, and the inquisitors are trying to convince him to trample on Jesus. But Father Rodriguez, in the rigid Roman Catholic faith of his time, he believed that for him to trample on Jesus was to deny Christ, and that, in his mind, was an unforgivable sin. It was blasphemy of the worst kind. There would be no road back, no road back. And here's a spoiler alert. If you want to know the end of the story, you should just end it here. But they finally apply enough pressure in the right area to break Father Rodriguez. Let me read a portion from the end of the novel. It goes like this. The priest raises his foot. In it he feels a dull, heavy pain. There is no mere formality. He will now trample on what he has considered the most beautiful thing in his life, on what he has believed most pure, on what he is, what is filled with the ideals and dreams of man. How his foot aches. And then the Christ in bronze speaks to the priest. Trample, trample. I more than anyone know the pain in your foot. Trample. It was to be trampled on by men that I was born into the world. It was to share men's pain that I carried my cross. The priest 
placed his foot on the fumi. Dawn broke, and in the distance, the cock crowed. Isn't that powerful? The way Jesus speaks to him through the bronze icon, to let him know that forgiveness was still his, even in his act of blasphemy. It was to be trampled on by men that I was born into this world. It was to share men's pain that I carried my cross. That could be Jesus speaking to Judas from the cross. The invitation was there, but Judas, as far as we know, he didn't seek it out and died with the curse of sin over his head. So the next time you come to the communion table, I want you to do something for me. I want you to use your imagination. I want you to imagine that Jesus is sitting next to you. Jesus is dipping the bread and offering it to you. That he's toasting you. That he's giving you an appeal of love. No matter what you've done, no matter all the things that we can't undo, he knows the past. His grace is prepared to help us shape our future. Respond to his appeal of love. He's toasting you. Here's to you, the disciple that I love. Have a great week.